Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Hello, this is the recorded version of Dr. Dawn, informing you that I'm on vacation right now, so I'll be back from vacation in a few weeks, but please keep listening. I think you'll find it interesting. Some of us are old enough to remember a rather funny commercial public service announcement from the 1980s. As I recall, it involved eggs in a frying pan. Hold up the egg. This is your brain. Crack the egg, drop it into a hot frying pan. Brief close-up on the sizzle of the uh, albumin, and then this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Yes, well, it was a powerful image, and, of course, not entirely even accurate as a metaphor. But what really does happen to your brain on drugs? Well, at the Pickhower Institute at MIT, they've been studying general anesthesia and how it alters your brain waves. Propofol, the general anesthesia, has a profound effect on redirecting and disrupting the higher frequency traveling waves that are normally present during conscious functioning. While we're on the subject of metaphors, Imagine the conscious brain as a sea rolling with collisions and dispersals of waves of different sizes and shapes, swirling and flowing across in many different directions. Now imagine that an ocean liner rumbles through, flattening everything that trails behind with its powerful parting wake. A new study finds that unconsciousness induced by the commonly used drug propofol has something like that metaphorical effect on higher frequency brainwaves, appearing to well, just sweep them aside, and, as an apparent consequence, sweeping consciousness away as well. The study in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience by MIT scientists at the Pickhour Institute for Learning and Memory shows that propofol substantially alters how different frequencies of brain waves travel across the brain's surface or cortex. Whereas conscious brains exhibit a mixture of waves of various frequencies rotating or traveling straight in various directions, brains under propofol anesthesia become dominated by very powerful low-frequency delta waves that roll straight outward in opposite directions instead of slowly rotating around central points as they do in consciousness. Higher-frequency beta waves, meanwhile, become fewer and more erratically structured, traveling only in the directions not dominated by the surging delta waves. Traveling waves are hypothesized to perform many important functions as they coordinate the activity of brain cells over areas of brain they cover. These include reading information out from memory and holding it there while it waits to be used in cognition. They may also aid in perception and act as a means of keeping time in the brain. These findings, therefore, illustrate how profoundly anesthesia alters the state of the brain as it induces and maintains unconsciousness. One of the scientists, uh, Earl K. Miller, a professor at the MIT Department of Neuroscience, said, The beta traveling waves seen during wakefulness are pushed aside, redirected by the delta traveling waves that have been altered and made more powerful by the anesthetic. 
the deltas come through like a bull in a china shop. The researchers also studied animals through the entire process of both anesthesia and returning to consciousness. So they were able to observe the changes, both going into and coming out of anesthesia, and how the brainwaves restored themselves and went back to their normal conscious configuration. The key seems to be the drastic breakdown of those beta traveling waves that connect the various areas of the brain and allow them to aid each other in forming thoughts. The study's findings suggest an important way in which anesthesia differs from sleep. It's a common misconception that the two states of unconsciousness are similar. Often we will use the words in the clinic, you're going to go to sleep, and when you wake up, the surgery will be over. Well, you're not actually going to sleep. In normal sleep, delta waves travel in a rotating pattern that may provide the timing that induces that spike-dependent plasticity needed for consolidating memories of experiences accumulated during the day. Under propofol, however, delta waves become planar rather than rotating, disrupting this memory-aiding mechanism and depriving the brain of a key function of sleep. On reading this, I was reminded of Michael Jackson, who, due probably to childhood trauma occurring multiple times, had a great deal of insomnia and nervousness. His doctor treated this insomnia by inducing sleep with propofol, effectively not really inducing sleep. We now understand drastically changing Michael's brain function over time, probably not in a healthy way. The rest of this week's program is a repeat of a show we did about a month ago that had a lot of good science lessons, and I thought it was worth repeating. I hope you enjoy this. I'm reminded of a commercial from my childhood. Are you tired? Low energy? Just don't have that get up and go? Maybe you have iron poor blood. Try Geritol. And, of course, images of tired, gray-haired woman holding her head, bending forward, and the same woman holding Geritol, smiling broadly, wearing tennis whites, and headed out to the court. So, yeah, Geritol was absolutely a bad idea because iron is important for energy. But too much iron is very, very toxic and damages body tissues. Most people know that iron is needed for making hemoglobin in the red blood cells, which carries oxygen throughout our body, picks it up in the lungs, carries it around, drops it off in areas where the oxygen concentration is low, turns a bluish color after it drops its, uh, after it drops off its oxygen, heads back to the lungs to pick up more oxygen. Hemoglobin is the name of the multiple component protein that acts like a setting, like a, you know, Tiffany diamond. It acts uh, like the setting that holds the iron in place and leaves a space to grab onto the oxygen. You also have myoglobin in muscles. Same thing. It's there to grab oxygen because, boy, do muscles need oxygen when you're working them. But it's also in cytochromes. Cytochromes are a complex chemicals. They also act as carrier proteins. They are critical for uh, the liver 
where they perform detoxification. In fact, uh, just a shout out to Paxlovid, one of the reasons that it has that long list of drug interactions is because it interferes with a cytochrome P450 called 3A4, which is critical for breaking down about 80% of drugs. And it interferes with it majorly. So you have to make sure that the drugs that person is on aren't going to overdose themselves uh, or, on the contrary, uh, not be activated because you've disabled that enzyme. Mitochondria also use cytochromes, very important for energy production, critical, in fact, for the uh, cytochrome P450 oxidative phosphorylation chain, absolutely critical to make all of that ATP. But iron is also important for DNA synthesis. So cellular growth, it's critical for that. It's critical for making the myelin sheath, which allows nerves to function properly. And it's very, very important in the the immune system. And much of this that I'm about to talk about now, I didn't know, but I found it fascinating, and I hope I can make it interesting for you. There are two immune responses. The innate immune response is our first line of defense against any infection or any noxious challenge. It's activated within minutes, and it involves cells at the surfaces, so the skin and the mucosal surfaces. And these cells use innate, you're born with them, encoded pattern recognition receptors. Essentially, you've got antibodies ready-made that just come out of the human germline, of the human DNA, that are designed to sense certain compounds that are found on the surface of bacteria. These compounds are going to be there whenever you have any kind of bacterial or viral infection. The innate immune system is going to recognize them. It's going to activate eater cells that are going to try to consume those antigens and the attached bacteria uh, that have them on their surface. And it's going to trigger the secretion of chemotactic factors, that is to say, calling all cars kind of chemical signals that circulate in the bloodstream and the other immune cells actually hone in on the concentration gradient to arrive at the site of injury or invasion by bacteria. And iron is very important for these, and we're extremely, extremely uh, dependent on it. If you give something like uh, an iron chelator just in an experiment, you basically immediately reduce the ability of your immune cells to kill bacteria. So iron is really important for exactly the same reason it's dangerous, because you can also weaponize iron to uh, attack the bugs, and you can, and iron stimulates those eater cells. So iron influences also the activation of the main transcription factor that creates all of the immunity. That means all inflammation is sort of loaded into your DNA. And when you trigger NF-kappa B, and it's a long series of triggers, which we won't go into, but that is the thing that goes to the nucleus and turns on all of the inflammatory pathways, including the the inflammatory pathways, by the way, that we block with, with ibuprofen and with steroids. So this is really the core function of our immune system is to create inflammation and direct it towards our enemies. So it's extremely important. One of the ways to think about iron in the immune system 
is that there's iron in the bloodstream and then there's iron inside the cells. And bacteria need iron to live. And they'll start eating the iron that they find in your body, which means, of course, that if it's being consumed by the bacteria, it's no longer available to you and the levels drop. So it's thought that a sudden drop in the levels indicates that you have a mouse in the house, that you have someone who might be consuming the iron that's an uninvited guest. And also, uh, the bacteria will actively grab up iron and sequester it inside themselves, you know, just like squirrels storing nuts for the winter. So a sudden lowering of iron inside the cells is an indicator of infection, triggers those cytokines to be released. What they found is that there is a iron transport protein called transporter ferroprotein that is extremely important and involved with those big eater cells, those macrophages. And certain bacteria seem to be able to inhibit the macrophages. These are uh, often intracellular pathogens like chlamydia, mycobacteria, of course, mycobacterium tuberculosis, Chlamydia trachomatis can cause atypical pneumonia. Legionella can do it. And they all work by lowering cellular iron levels, and that interferes with the function of the macrophages. And there's a marker for that, which is the an increase in this transporter ferroprotein. So you could manipulate that, and they're working on manipulating this, uh, both to study how the immune system works, but also with the idea that we might be able to... Uh, make a drug that would help prevent the inhibition of the macrophages. So the easiest way to think about it is the body reduces iron absorption in the gut and it reduces iron in plasma um, to starve the bacteria's supply line. What's interesting is that this transporter protein tends to be inverse with iron absorption. So there's a connection between a another protein, which we'll come to in a moment, called hepcidin. Uh, But basically, if your liver wants to increase your iron absorption, you're going to get suppression of your immune system. And so it's it's a careful balance not to absorb too much iron and feed the beast and suppress your immune system, and also to get through the infection when you haven't encountered this bug before. Now, there's also adaptive immunity, and we've all had a lesson in adaptive immunity over the last few few years, uh, and that's, of course, your B cells and your T cells. And a super interesting factoid is that lymphocyte development in the mouse is completely dependent on the presence of a receptor on the surface of the lymphocyte called type 1 transferrin receptor. Other parts of the immune system, like the B cells, are not affected by an absence of this receptor. But if you have low iron levels or you have a congenital abnormality in the uh, receptor, which is a thing, you can have very poor ability to mature your T cells. So even though the rest of the immune system is working properly and the dendrite cells are presenting the antigen and presenting it with the appropriate stimulating chemicals and the T cells are receiving the command, if you will, to start becoming 
a, a targeted T cell against that antigen, they can't do it. They can't mature. They're in a situation of arrested development because they can't absorb iron. And I think that's brings us to the uh, next issue. We'll do a little deep dive now in, into iron absorption because clearly we need iron to be just right. Too little and nothing works and the bacteria have a party and too much and we burn our tissues with oxygen-free radicals and age ourselves and trash our liver. So iron regulation is very important. In the human gut, iron competes with zinc, magnesium, calcium, and it loses big time to lead. Uh, Ironically, lead the body loves to absorb, which is not great when you're living in an old house with lead paint and lead paint dust. And just like vitamin D controls calcium's ability to be absorbed, turning calcium absorption up in the case of vitamin D, there's this compound I alluded to earlier, hepcidin, that's made in the liver that does the reverse. It turns down iron absorption uh, in the gut. And the gene for hepcidin is called HFE. And people with a bad copy of this gene will overabsorb iron and get a disease called hemochromatosis, which most of you have probably heard of. There are actually several gene mutations that cause different forms of hemochromatosis. It's sometimes called an iron storage disease, but actually that's only because we didn't understand the biochemistry. It's really an iron overabsorption issue. And one of the um, other ones... The other mutations that can lead to hemochromatosis is a mutation in the cell surface receptor for transferrin. Transferrin is the plasma protein that carries iron around and delivers it to the body cells. So if you don't have the receptor, you can't get iron into those tissues. So the iron just floats around until it washes up in the capillary beds in the interstitial tissues and As it accumulates, of course, it's more and more toxic. Remember I said iron burns you. It causes oxidative stress. So you're damaging and scarring those organs that accumulate it, like your spleen, like your liver. This is how that disease proceeds. So as you would expect, if there's iron deficiency, hepcidin will increase. The liver will say, I need more iron. Go absorb it. So here's just the simplified ecosystem Imagine we're talking about the carbon cycle or the water cycle. So oral iron-containing foods are bathed in acid and ground up by the teeth and the stomach to separate the iron from the other components. Then it competes with calcium, zinc, and et cetera to pass through a cellular pore. That pore is called NRAMP2, uh, and, that, and it's in the cells of the duodenum, which is where we absorb our iron. People who have their duodenin removed for whatever reason, have a hard time absorbing iron and often will need iron shots. People who uh, don't make the NRAMP2 receptor or some one of the other receptors, like the ferroportin that I've already talked about, are also going to have a problem, and those genetic diseases exist. But once the iron goes from the inside of the intestine to the inside of the intestinal wall, the duodenal cells, it then gets attached to this ferroportin dumped into the interstitial fluid and the plasma. It's immediately detached, and then it attaches to the ferritin. So hepcidin 
reduces the amount of ferroprotein. So even though the iron gets in via the NRAMP, it just sits there in the duodenum. It can't pass into the plasma. And once you fill up those duodenal cells, it just passes on through. No room at the end, so to speak. Uh, When the iron does get in, it gets attached to transferrin, and then it goes for a ride throughout the bloodstream where that transferrin receptor uh, in cells that need iron, they'll go ahead and make more transferrin receptor, send it out to the surface, create those little pores that are selective for iron, and drop it into their cytoplasm where they make, among other things, if you're in the bone marrow, we make hemoglobin. If you're in the liver, well, you're going to use it uh, to make those cytochromes. So if we want to track hemochromatosis or diagnose it, one of the ways is to measure the amount of saturated transferrin that's floating around. If there's a lot of transferrin, then something's wrong with either hepcidin or or the receptors for the transferrin that would otherwise be pulling the iron off. So here's an interesting pearl that I was fascinated with, and it's definitely going to change my workup uh, New medical factoid, right? One of the early symptoms of iron overload is knuckle pain without arthritis. So if your knuckles all start hurting and you haven't been punching the wall and it's, and it's bilateral, uh, then you might want to think about getting a transferrin saturation test and see that you're falling into the normal range. There's a lot of people out there with one of these mutations, they're not rare mutations, that maybe they do fine and their body is fine for a while, but once that iron starts to accumulate in the joints, it likes to show up in the knuckles, it's pro-inflammatory, remember, so you're going to get an arthritis-like syndrome. Postmenopausal women, uh, women are a little bit protected from iron overload while they're menstruating, but then once you're postmenopausal, the hemochromatosis may manifest. So, Once in the bloodstream, we left the iron sitting on the transferrin, it has to get into the cell. And this is determined by the level of transferrin receptor on the cell wall, and also by levels of ferritin. Ferritin is normally an intracellular protein. It's the iron-carrying protein, uh, basically, that keeps the iron wrapped up inside the cell, because you do not want loose iron going around chewing on the carpeting or chewing on your mitochondria, because it will. It's a badly trained, uh, it's a it's a badly trained atom, and it likes to cause trouble. So, those oxygen free radicals are very nasty, and you want to keep them at bay by holding on to the iron with ferritin. So, if you don't have the right level of transferrin receptor, it's not getting in. If you don't have enough ferritin, it's not getting in either because there's no one to hand it off to, and it just stacks up at the door, so to speak. This next thing kind of explains one of the things that has always puzzled me. Because when a person has an infection, their serum ferritin goes up. It's called an acute phase reaction. Platelets go up too. Uh, And I've never really understood that until reading about this today. You'll remember that the bacteria need iron and like to eat it from our cells. They prefer to get it from the cells. So depleting the intracellular space of iron, that is to say, kicking the ferritin out into the plasma, Hiding the iron there starves out the bacteria and slows down its growth. So as I said, bone marrow makes hemoglobin, muscles make myoglobin. In skin and liver, you make uh, cytochromes for detox. And of course, 
everywhere you make DNA and those critical mitochondrial cytokines that keep the whole amazing mechanism rocking along. So you're probably wondering at this point, is my iron okay? Typically what's measured is serum ferritin. A good serum level of ferritin in a postmenopausal woman is around 65 to 80 micrograms per liter. There's a wide range of normal, but uh, this is a really good example of the confusion between normal, meaning average, and normal, meaning good. Fun fact, only 10% of the iron used to make hemoglobin and cytochromes come from the diet. The other 90% is recycled from the red blood cells by the macrophages. The macrophages are out there floating around in the bloodstream and the, and looking for weird-shaped red blood cells. When red blood cells get old, they start to look a little funny. The macrophages are looking for that and will grab those cells, break them down as if they were a bacteria, And, of course, the macrophages are also helping you break down your dead tissue and absorbing your and killing off and dissolving your mistwisted proteins. And so this is, it's a major cleanup factor in the body. So this makes sense. But they are then complexing, recomplexing, I should say, the iron uh, into one of its storage forms and sending it back into circulation. So 90% is not coming from the diet. It's just recycling. It's a pretty efficient system when you think about it. Other fun facts for people who have one or more of the hemochromatosis genes, curcumin binds iron and cilantro binds iron. So learn to love cilantro. And when you are eating, uh, let's say, meat or uh, red meat or another food that might maybe has a lot of iron, you want to try to bind it in the gut. Hemochromatosis shows up gradually and generally late in life after you've loaded all of the safe tissues with iron. In many ways, it resembles heavy metal toxicity. I find that rather fascinating as well, uh, as heavy metals are the bane of modern industrial civilization and one of the major causes of dementia, strong linkage with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. So, yeah, I regret every single silver silver filling I ever had, and unfortunately for me, I had a lot of them. I was well-dentisted as a child. All right, so coming back to something I had stacked up as a potential thing to talk about someday, but after all of that uh, red bud cell and iron thing, I was flipping through my set aside for someday articles and came across this one, recent work showing that the red blood cells themselves may have more to do with the immune system than we thought. Did you know there's 30 trillion red blood cells cruising around in the bloodstream? And biologists did not know that they also actually have an immune function. Scanning the bloodstream for signs of infection and injury. So, you probably know that red blood cells don't have a nucleus. They've lost all their DNA. They've lost all their organelles. And that's basically so they can hold as much hemoglobin and oxygen as possible. Now, the nice thing about red blood cells is because they lack that internal structure, they can squeeze through nooks and crannies in organs and tissues 
that they couldn't do if they had to protect a nucleus and they had uh, a cytoskeleton like other cells. So there are invertebrates that use red blood cells for defense, but it wasn't known that humans and mammals did it until very recently. And we've talked about toll-like receptors before. TLRs are a receptor for lipopolysaccharides. These are compounds that are found on the cell walls pretty much exclusively of bacteria. So earlier on when we were talking about the innate immune system and I said there are these built-in things that are hardwired into our DNA that we're going to have to help us recognize viruses and bacteria, well, the toll-like receptor family is one of the main ones. And it turns out that there is a particular toll-like receptor on the red blood cells and that it is actually scanning DNA molecules that have a particular pattern. That particular pattern is, is repeating pairs of cytosine and guanine. Now, damaged human cells release this, which would, of course, call the macrophages, right? Clean this mess up. And the DNA of bacteria and certain viruses are very, very rich in these cytosine-guanine duels. They're called CPG motifs, and they are strong immune uh, reactants. They cause the immune system to really, really react. Now it turns out, not just in the test tube, but in uh, in mice, that that red blood cells latch on to this CPG-containing DNA. And they only really change their shape when large amounts are present. But when it when they attach, when they have a lot of toll-like receptors that are attached to this stuff, they scrunch up, they basically pucker, uh, and they look like old red blood cells at that point. So it's a hallmark for inflammation, and it's also a trigger for the inflammatory uh, response. We know this because then the macrophages come and they start recycling what they take to be senescent red cells, but the toll-like receptor response and these CPG motifs also set the macrophages on fire, and they release a lot of chemical signals that get the whole immune system overheated. So some interesting things explained by this. Almost all people in the ICU are actually quite anemic by their third day in the ICU. And when I was in medical school and uh, my early training, this was put down to all of the blood we draw. But actually, as the red blood cells that have gotten puckered pass through the spleen, the immune cells grab them, and healthy red blood cells don't get grabbed because they have a don't-eat-me protein on the surface. But when they pucker, they also down-regulate that don't-eat-me signal, and so they get at. Basically, in this study, just to prove the concept it was done in mice, they took red blood cells and they exposed them to that CPG-laden DNA Then they infused them back into the mice with a radio label, and they found that they all concentrated in the spleen, specifically in the macrophages that were in the spleen, you know, basically acting as garbage disposals. They also did a study looking at people with sepsis, and they found the same thing, the the CPG-laden DNA on the cells. So we now understand the anemia. We didn't before. And it all kind of hooks in to what I was saying earlier about iron. I'm going to roll to our first email, this one from Amanda in Salem, Oregon. 
Amanda writes, CSR and high testosterone levels. Hi, I'm a 52-year-old female and recently developed central serous retinopathy. And I've been uh, to a retinal specialist, and they told me it is self-limiting. Uh, I've been on uh, hormone replacement therapy for about four years, progesterone from a compounding formulary as a troche, uh, topical va- estrogen as well as vaginal estrogen with DHEA. Findings from my recent blood work show my testosterone levels to be high at 6.8. Now she's talking about, in that case, with a 6.8, because of the difference in the numbers, I know that we're talking about nanomoles per liter rather than nanograms per deciliter. And boy, do I hate units. Now, I, why can't we all use just one set of units, please? It gets so confusing. The Europeans always use nanomoles for everything. And I'm lost when I look at, uh, level, at levels without a reference because, you know, it's just, it's a foreign language to me. And the others, I've kind of got what the references ranges are. I know what's bad, but God, I hate units sometimes. Sorry, I digressed. Getting back to the uh, email from Amanda. And she gives her blood levels. They're they're quite fine in the normal range. Her testosterone is a bit high. Her estrogens is okay. Her t- progesterone is okay. Since the central serous retinopathy usually happens to men, who are probably taking steroids, another risk factor, which I am not, do you think it could be related to high testosterone, which I obviously need to get down? An accompanying question, could the progesterone or DHEA be transforming into testosterone? I heard you comment on hormones and eyesight, so I hope you can shed some light, no pun intended, on the issue. Thanks, as always, for all you do. First of all, I want to talk about central serous retinopathy. This is basically a kind of macular degeneration in which there's damage to the integrity of the blood vessels. Normally, in the back of the eyeball, you've got a little bit of nutrient being released, but most of the water is supposed to stay inside the cells. If you can imagine multiple layers and slipping, say, a hot water bottle into the covers or slipping a balloon between two sheets and blowing it up, you're going to lift that top sheet. Uh, if fluid gets into between two sheets of the retina and it lifts the nerve sheet, which is on the inside of the eyeball trying to sense light, it affects vision. Specifically, it affects the uh, accuracy and clarity of vision. So that's what's going on in central serous retinopathy. So I went uh, digging. And the frequency of central serous retinopathy is about one in 2,000 uh, men. Uh, so not ra- too rare, but still not very common. And it's about closer to one in uh, 700 uh, men who are on testosterone. So the odds are still pretty long, but the group that shoots the testosterone, that injects it, seems to be at much higher risk because when you inject testosterone, you're getting a real surge of the hormone initially. And so the levels locally in the bloodstream get very high for a while, and it's probably a dose response with this. I want to just point out that I don't think your testosterone level of 6.8 has anything to do with this because the reference range, the range that you see in untreated men who are not taking testosterone is 10 to 35. 
So that group is at the one in 2000 risk. You're at two thirds of the lower limit there. So it's very unlikely that you're somewhat high for a woman. Testosterone has anything to do with your disease. That being said, I can understand being a little spooked and saying, well, you know, I'd still like to fix it. I want to point out that uh, the DHEA, you didn't give me your dose, but DHEA can convert into testosterone. Uh, One of the things that we often do in functional medicine is if a person wants to take DHEA, uh, and I don't know that you do need to, but if you find that you don't like not being without it, switch to something called 7-keto DHEA. 7-keto DHEA is available out there. The 7-keto group or the keto group at the 7 point on the molecule, and don't ask me to give you any more detail about the structure because I can't, helps impair the enzymes that turn it into testosterone from doing that. Instead, the DHEA goes down the cortisol pathway and helps support the adrenal gland. And speaking of adrenals, high levels of testosterone are highly associated with type A behavior in both men and women. So you have to ask, I have to ask you, Amanda, are you a kind of type A lady? I know I am, and I actually do have borderline high testosterone levels. Uh, I do use hormone replacement therapy. I think I'm probably upregulating the uh, enzymes, and uh, I need to start meditating more. So that would be one bit of advice. Changing to the 7-keto uh, DHA would be another bit of advice. And then maybe regular meditation, change to the 7-keto, and check that testosterone level back in, say, three to four months and see if you have gotten it down into the female normal range of 0.5 to 2.4. Now, that uh, the lab that you had had 0 to 4.2. Labs come up with their own norms, and because of their subtleties to the difference in the techniques they use, we need to go by the reference range of the lab, always understanding that normal is not necessarily ideal. It's just what people who aren't apparently sick have uh, at that laboratory or at that la- within that laboratory system. Let's talk about sleep. I think if I haven't put you to sleep by now, certainly a conversation about sleep would probably be welcome. Uh, this came... Over the weekend, last weekend, when I was attending the virtual functional medicine conference, I was so sad that it's virtual. This is uh, was a talk by a man, na- a doctor named Matthew Walker. He's at UC Berkeley. His website is sleepdiplomat.com, and he had a few interesting tidbits about sleep that I'm going to share with you. First of all, because he's at a university, and we're a bunch of university types at these meetings. He said, well, you probably want to know this. And so sleeping after learning is very, very important. If you're trying to learn something, studying it at night or then sleeping or napping after learning it is the best way to consolidate those memories. But sleeping before learning is also important because you want to go into that learning experience having cleared the registers, so to speak. And then he cited a study, the all-nighter study, it was called. So they had a sleep deprivation group, and they had an eight-hour sleep group. And then while they were learning, they looked at their fMRI scans, and they saw a substantial difference 
in how they worked. So if you get deep sleep, you're going to learn better because your deep sleep is when you do your file transfer. That's when you defragment your disk on your brain and do your file transfer. It's obviously a 3D, much more complicated process than that. But we now understand that we can see deep sleep through a structure called sleep spindles, which show up. And we have mentioned this before. And there is really interesting research using direct current brain stimulation that is looking very promising, according to him. And he gave us a a 2018 study. I immediately thought about that. You know, as a postmenopausal woman, I do do occasionally experience difficulty with sleep, and I am jealous of my deep sleep and try to, I don't know how accurate my device is, but I basically believe the device when it tells me I didn't get enough. Could be placebo, but I just don't feel as sharp when I don't get enough deep sleep. So I went looking for the articles and looked into this direct uh, current brain stimulation, found some interesting articles. A lot of them are old. The most recent one I found was uh, from Sleep Med in 2020, so not too long ago. And they were using transcranial direct current stimulation devices, looking at sleep quality and depressive symptoms in patient with a mood disorder uh, who also have insomnia. Uh, These are patients with major depression and insomnia, and they gave them a sham stimulator or a real stimulator, hooked them up. It was uh, 47% in the treatment group, 43% in the uh, placebo group. Uh, They did these treatments uh, at two microamps stimulation for 30 minutes. Uh, Then they did that weekly for four weeks, and compared the results, uh, what they found was that the sleep duration and sleep efficiency significantly improved, and the sleep architecture improved, and also there were more of these spindles. Uh, They also had improvement on the scores for depression. So it improved the symptoms of depression, it improved the symptoms of anxiety, and it had a positive effect on sleep quality. So having reviewed that article, my next thought was, well, uh, is anybody making this? And indeed, I was able to find some stimulators. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a recommendation. You can go look online and find this if you're inclined. What I'm going to do is actually a little personal experiment. I have plenty of data now for my deep sleep because I've been monitoring it for a couple of years, and I've definitely noticed factors that influence it. For example, the time I go to bed and right out of Dr. Walker's study, that's one of his big sleep recommendations is, yes, regularity, getting to sleep at the right time is extremely important. Getting up at the same time is extremely important. And I have found that really helpful. Much as I like to sleep in, Uh, it definitely affects my sleep the next night. Lowering the temperature, one degree centigrade drop uh, in body temperature occurs during sleep. And so he recommends the ambient temperature in the room be kept at about 65 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Of course, if you live in a hot climate, you might want to try a chill pad or a chillo to cool your body down. Uh, another paradoxical thing is to take a hot bath just before trying to sleep because the heat causes your body to respond to the heat by dropping your body temperature and you actually raise your surface temperature but lower your core temperature and that helps you get to sleep. Sleep is a life support system. As Dr. Walker says, it's a non-negotiable biological necessity. Don't think that you're not aging yourself uh, rapidly by trying to get by on six hours a night. Testosterone levels drop from lack of sleep. Estrogen drops, FSH drops, luteinizing hormones drop, and insulin resistance increases and blood sugar increases. So some of our lack of sleep might really be a big factor. Another interesting factoid is right after the time change, every year we go forward, we spring forward and we fall back. We need to get rid of that. There is a 20% one-day increase in heart attacks the day after the time change. It either goes up when we shorten our sleep cycle, and it goes down when we lengthen our sleep cycle. We also see parallel statistics epidemiologically for both motor vehicle accidents and suicide attempts. So I think the time change needs to stop. I think it's a public health issue. And maybe if we can frame it that way, we can finally make a dent in this. Everybody has light bulbs now. It really doesn't matter. And who rocks to school anymore anyway? Uh, Not very many kids, so that argument is kind of out the window as well. Another thing to think about is the immune system. Your natural killer cells, which are your first response against cancer, are affected by sleep. And we have ample, ample studies showing us that sleep work, that shift work is carcinogenic. The only way you can avoid, if you are a shift worker, the only way you can avoid the cancer hit is to always stay in the same time zone. So if you're working nights, then you just have to basically pretend that you're living in Paris and you're on Paris time, not California time or not New York time more accurately because that's an eight-hour shift. You can do it, but you've got to stay in your time zone. Stay in your lane, stay in your, stay in your time zone. There are some genes that affect sleep and what we see is that the bad genes pretty much uniformly get turned on. So you get increased stress genes, increased tumor genes, increased inflammation, uh, and decreased immunity. So I've already talked about sleep tips, but one of the things that I really loved about this lecture was that there was a long Q&A. And of course, we've all got our favorite things that we use. So coffee was the first question out. uh, And he said, you know, the antioxidants in coffee are excellent and they're still in the decaf. Dr. Walker recommends 200 milligrams of caffeine per day max and do that with a cutoff 12 hours before bedtime. It takes about six hours to cut your caffeine dose in half. So if you allow two half-lives, that is to say 12 hours, you're going to get down to the one-quarter half-life, that 200 milligrams circulating in your bloodstream is going to be 50, and that's below the threshold that keeps most people awake. 
Now, some people have a rapid metabolism of caffeine and they fall asleep easily, but when we do sleep studies on them, oh, I can go to sleep. Yeah, you can, but you're not getting all the way down to the bottom of the pool. You're not getting to that deep sleep, so you're not detoxifying and you're not clearing the registers and you're not doing the file transfer and consolidating your memory. He had an interesting idea. He said, what if sleep is how we evolved? What if in early evolution, when we were at the stage of worms, we were effectively asleep and just kind of sleepwalking around underground and eating, eating what it, organic material and flying in our sleep if we were bugs? What if what evolved is wakefulness and orexin, which is the wakefulness hormone? What if it's the other way around? And of course, there were questions about THC. It makes it a little easier to fall asleep, but it blocks REM sleep. And in really heavy THC users, without REM sleep, that kind of sleep deprivation will really affect you. It affects your hormones, drops your testosterone again. It's essential for mental health to get REM. And so when people do a lot of it, and then they try to come off THC, they'll get a REM sleep rebound and they'll start having these really, really vivid dreams. And they'll also have uh, sometimes a severe insomnia rebound as well when they're not sleeping. CBD, on the other hand, is fine. And uh, CBD actually drops core body temperature, which is important for helping with sleep. So it's probably okay. It also appears to increase deep sleep duration. It's an anxiolytic. It induces hypothermia in rats. So it's unregulated. Third-party testing is a problem. You want to be really careful with your um, dose. Less than 20 milligrams actually increases alertness. You need to get a, at or above 25 milligrams. I personally use 30 milligrams if I'm going to use it. You'll have to buy an expensive product where they actually test the concentration because you can't really know that you're getting enough. Melatonin, not so much. Good for time zone shifting because uh, it's the darkness hormone, so it helps regulate the timing of sleep, but it doesn't generate sleep. Uh, it does decrease sleep latency a bit, so it can be helpful in that, but it doesn't have a substantial effect on improving sleep efficiency, and it doesn't do anything for the deep sleep. Also, if you buy products, don't use super physiologic doses. Stick it one milligram or less. That's the dose that actually does anything. Higher than that actually turns off your melatonin response. And unfortunately, when you look at what's out there being labeled as one milligram, it's all over the map. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.